Alright, we're going to read some scripture, First uh, Kings chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. This is from 3,000 years ago, uh, when Solomon built the temple, and uh, we're going to just get a little glimpse of this this morning. So let me read these verses. It says, King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month, so that they spend one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced laborer. Solomon had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workers. At the king's command, they removed from the quarry large blocks of high-grade stone to provide a foundation of dressed stone for the temple. The craftsmen of Solomon and Hiram workers from Miblos cut and prepared the timber and stone for the building of the temple. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning as we look into God's Word. Lord, uh, thank you for the privilege we have to look into your Word this morning. Uh, Lord, this, is, uh, this is, book is the, unlike any other book. It is the inspired Word of God. And every crossed T, every dotted I is true. Every prophetic word will come to pass. And Lord, I pray that as we look back into history some 3,000 years ago this morning and we think about this uh, building of your temple, a house for you, Lord, that we would um, learn, uh, but most of all, that your spirit would uh, take some truths from your word and speak to each of us today individually. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are looking at uh, the story of King Solomon. As I mentioned, this is a story from uh, 3,000 years ago because King Solomon was the king of Israel. He was the third king of Israel. There was uh, Saul was the first king. Uh, King David was the second king. And uh, David reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon, his son, uh, reigned for 40 years as well. And so we're going to think about uh, temple building and we're going to think about this uh, incredible project that that uh, Solomon built a permanent place for God's people to worship. Before the temple was built, um, they had something called the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle was portable, and as Israel moved, they would pack up that tabernacle. It was a tent-like structure, and they would move it, and when they would camp for a while, it would be uh, in the center of, of their camp encampment, and all the tribes would be around it, and uh, the tabernacle was the center of worship, but it was portable and movable. And uh, in, in King David's heart, David, when he was king, wanted to build a permanent structure for God's people to worship. And uh, God didn't allow David to do that, but he allowed his son to do that, his son Solomon. So I want us to think a little bit about the history of of the temple. Uh, The temple was built in Jerusalem, and it was on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was the same mount where, if you remember from your Old Testament history, that God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And you remember that story in Genesis 22, and, and uh, Abraham and Isaac climb up Mount Moriah, and uh, uh, God intervenes and provides a lamb to sacrifice there, and there God's called Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Well, Mount Moriah was the exact place where Solomon built his temple. He 
started the temple, if we look at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we discover it was the, the building of the temple started in the fourth year of Solomon's reign in the month of Zev, the second month, he began to build the temple 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. So the, the Exodus was the, was the seminal event in Israel's history, and everything centers around the Exodus. And so uh, 480 years after the Exodus, Solomon starts building the temple. It took seven years to build the temple. And uh, we read about the, the completion of it in the last part of chapter 6, verse 37. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished. He had spent seven years building it. So this was a seven-year project that uh, Solomon spent building God's permanent worship place. Now that temple stood for almost 400 years until the Babylonian captivity. And it was really God's judgment on Israel for not not following God the way that God had laid out for them. And the Babylonians come in, and in 587 B.C., they destroyed Solomon's temple. About 50 years later, now the world power is now the Persian Empire, a king by the name of King Cyrus issued an order allowing the Jews who were in captivity to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is all about. Ezra is about rebuilding the temple, and Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so thousands of Jews made that trek back, and they rebuilt the temple. Uh, that was the second temple. It was, it was not as uh, uh, big or as glorious as Solomon's temple, uh, but the temple was rebuilt. And in 20 B.C., about 400 years later, King Herod decided to expand and, and enlarge and remodel the temple. In fact, it was a remodeling project that took 46 years. So some of you wives, that you know, your husbands are lagging behind in the remodeling projects. So, you know, um, it took 46 years to remodel the temple. And it became known as, as Herod's Temple. And you remember that story in, in John chapter 2 when Jesus drove the uh, money changers out of the courts of the temple and uh, the religious leaders confront Jesus and say, by what authority do you do this? And in John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews are confused and like, what are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days and of course they didn't they didn't know that he was talking about his body uh, and the resurrection and so Herod remodeled the temple enlarged the temple expanded the temple grounds and that stood until 70 AD that's when the Romans came in and totally destroyed Herod's temple and there's not been a temple on that temple mount uh, since then. But there is a day coming, because if you read your Bible carefully, you'll, you'll notice that during the tribulation period, what's happening? There are sacrifices in the temple. 
And of course, there's great controversy about those temple grounds today because it's not only a holy place for the Jews, but it's also a holy place for Islam. But someday, a third temple is going to be built. In fact, the Jews are already planning on it. And so um, that's a little bit of the history of of the temple since uh, since Solomon built it. But so we're gonna we're gonna look at um, a kind of an overview of how that all came to be. And uh, we're going to start with uh, 1 Chronicles 28, the plans for the temple. And it's laid out for us in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. As I mentioned, King David wanted to build the temple. And uh, even though that was a great desire in David's heart, God uh, said no because you are a warrior. You are a man that shed a lot of blood. Uh, God said you're not going to build the temple, but your son is. But David had a key part in building the te- in building the temple. Uh, he had the he gave the plans for the building of the temple, and as we're going to see, he provided a lot of the resources for the building of the temple. So let's look at the plans for the the temple. And uh, here's King David. This is First Chronicles twenty eight. Uh, King David rose to his feet and said, "Listen to me, my fellow Israelites. I had in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord." For the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name, because you are a warrior and have shed blood. And so, uh, just perusing through this this passage, God said to me, verse 6, Solomon, your son, is the one who will build my house, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Uh, verse 11, then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God, and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. And so, where did the plans for the temple come from? Well, uh, they came from King David, but ultimately they came from God, didn't they? Because the, the, the passage says, the scriptures say in verse 12, um, that uh, David says that it was all the spirit that had put in my, my mind. That's not verse 12, but um, forget what, where that is in the, in the text here. Uh, so it was, it was from God to David to Solomon. And the plans for the temple were basically the same outline of the tabernacle. It had a a, a courtyard. It had a holy place. And then as we saw those doors open up and it had the holy of holies. The tabernacle had the same outline. Uh, the, The difference, one of the difference, besides that it was a permanent structure, was that Solomon's temple was exactly twice the size of what the tabernacle was. And so the, the plans came from the Spirit of God to David, who then passed that on to his son Solomon. But let's look at the provision for building the temple. And that's found in the next chapter in First in Chronicles uh, chapter 29. And we're just going to give a quick overview here uh, of, of the provisions for building the temple. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. 
gold for the gold work, silver, bronze, iron, wood, as well as onyx, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of stone and marble, all in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple, my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple, over and above everything I provided for this holy temple. And it goes on to list what David gave. So not only out of the general fund of Israel, the general treasury, but King David steps forward and says, I'm going to give out of my own personal wealth. And so it lists what David gave, 3,000 talents of gold. It's 100 tons of gold. 7,000 talents of silver. 235 tons of silver. Uh, And then in verses 5 through 9, it talks about the fact that David then challenged the leaders of the nation of Israel, those that were in positions of leadership, to give out of their personal resources. And they willingly gave. And so in verse 9, it says, The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and David the king also rejoiced. And so there's this incredible... Um, giving, uh, starting with King David and then moving on to the leaders of Israel and they gave uh, sacrificially uh, to, of gold and silver and treasure and gems for the building of the temple and the people rejoiced. And David then prays a, a prayer out of thanksgiving uh, for all that God has has done Uh, Verse 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David says, uh, all that we have comes from God. So we're just giving back to you what you have blessed us with. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and it all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. And so David's praying this prayer, and he's like, it all comes from you, God, and we are so blessed that we can give back to you what you have blessed us with. And not only me, but, but the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel have given generously to provide for the building of the temple. And then at the end of the chapter is uh, the record of the death of King David. King David dies. This is his last, uh, last act in, in giving the plans for the temple to his son Solomon and, and um, providing the resources for the building of the temple. And King David uh, passes away after ruling for 40 years as king. Well, uh, one final point here, and then we're going to spend about 20 minutes looking at some personal application here. The preparation for building the temple. So, uh, we've seen the plans that came from God to David to Solomon. Uh, we've seen the provision, how people gave willingly and generously to, to provide for the resources to build the temple. And now we read in 1 Kings 5, the preparation for building the temple. And it starts with a partnership that Solomon made with someone who was a friend of his father, King David, and it was the king of Hiram. Uh, the king of Tyre, rather, um, and his name was Hiram. 
And we read about that in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 5, this, this partnership with the king of, of Tyre. And so Solomon um, had this partnership with Tyre and, and, and the King Hiram. And this was key, as we're going to see, because a part of what was used to build the temple was the wooden cedars of Lebanon. And then they were overlaid with gold. And, and so uh, here we read about this partnership. And, and uh, Solomon is, is communicating with the, the king of Tyre, King Hiram. And uh, in verse 5, I intend to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the f- Lord told my father David. Uh, verse 6, so give orders that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My men will work with yours and I will pay you for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidonians. And so um, up in Lebanon, this is modern day Lebanon, and it's a city by the name of Tyre. And in that region, there were a lot of cedar trees. And they were known all over the known world. And so Solomon makes this partnership with, with Hiram. And I think in, the, in an insert in your bulletin, you have a little outline of where Jerusalem is and where Tyre is. And, and it was a tremendous um, task to get all this wood from Tyre all the way down to Jerusalem. And so uh, the cedars are, of Lebanon were key in building the temple. A little bit of background about the cedars of Lebanon. In ancient times, cedar wood was especially desirable for its aromatic qualities as well as its resistance to decay. Lebanon in Tyre was known for its magnificent cedars. Cedar was a major export for and source of wealth. Even today, the image of a cedar tree is found on the Lebanese national flag. And so even today in, in Lebanon, they're known, for, they're known for this cedar wood. And so Solomon makes this uh, partnership with the, uh, with the king to get the cedars of Lebanon down to, um, down to Jerusalem. Uh, we read about the incredible workforce then that it took in order to, to make this happen. And so uh, 70,000 individuals transporting materials from Tyre and it came down through the Mediterranean Sea to a port, and then from that port to Jerusalem. 80,000 workers that worked as stonecutters to cut the stone for, for the foundation and, and the building of the temple. And then as we read in our scripture reading, that um, Solomon then conscripts uh, workers uh, to work. Uh, verse 13, 30,000 men in shifts of 10,000, working one month in Lebanon and then two months back at home. And then we read uh, about um, just this incredible workforce um, that that we just mentioned, 70,000 carriers, uh, verse 15, 80,000 stonecutters, 3,300 foremen who supervise the project. And so there's this incredible preparation and moving all the materials to Jerusalem to build uh, Solomon's temple. And seven years later, it was constructed, it was finished, and it was built. All right, that's just a little, a little overview and background of what it took to build this incredible, magnificent structure. And this morning, 
Um, we're going to just pause for a few minutes and think about some, some life lessons from um, this story of uh, building Solomon's temple and uh, hopefully some things that can apply to our lives. So let's look at life lesson number one. And here it is. Life lesson number one is nothing great is accomplished for God without personal sacrifice. Nothing great is accomplished for God without personal sacrifice. How did this magnificent structure get built? It got built because of the personal sacrifice of not only King David, not only the leaders in Israel, but also all all the people and all the laborers and all the workers. King David set the pace and he, he, he gave uh, uh, what would be worth millions and millions of dollars out of his own personal resources of gold and silver uh, to build the temple. The leaders gave sacrificially of their own resources. It took seven years of intense labor to, to build the temple. Personal sacrifice. Nothing great is accomplished for God without personal sacrifice. In fact, there's a story, and we'll look at it briefly, back in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and we don't have time to give the whole uh, context of this story, but I want to point out a certain statement that, that King David made in 2 Samuel chapter 24 as um, we read this uh, story that Samuel recorded, and it has to do with buying a threshing floor. A threshing floor was what they used to uh, to winnow and harvest wheat. And uh, David wants to buy a threshing floor. In fact, it's in Jerusalem. In fact, this is the place where the temple was built. He's he's purchasing the land at where the temple would would be built. And so. Um, let me let me just give the background of the story. And so, as a fellow by the name of Aruna, he's a Jebusite, and um, uh, he he meets King David, and uh, Aruna says to David, "Why has my lord the king come to his servant?" So he's overwhelmed that he's meeting the king of Israel. To buy your threshing floor, David answered, "So I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped." And that's the whole background of this story. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for burnt offerings. Here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Aruna gives all this to the king. So David wants to buy this piece of land and he wants to offer a sacrifice to God. And Aruna says, no, I'm going to give it to you. You're the king. You don't have to buy it. It's yours. May the Lord your God accept you, he says. But here's the key phrase, this is verse 24, but King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David says, no, I'm not going to receive that as a gift because I want to give to God something that costs me something and I will not offer these offerings and these sacrifices if if there's no personal cost attached to it. And so David ends up buying uh, this piece of land that was actually the future location of of where the temple was. And David says, I will not uh, sacrifice that which costs me nothing. 
One of the reasons, and I'm speaking in general terms here, one of the reasons that the American church today, in one sense, is weak is because it costs us nothing to follow Jesus. There's, there's no, in, in general terms, there's, there's no personal sacrifice. There's not much cost required to, to, to follow Jesus and to sacrifice from Him. In fact, today in our culture and with live streaming, you can sit on your couch and turn on the TV and your pajamas and watch a service. There's not much cost asked of us. There's not much personal sacrifice. And David says, I'm not going to offer to God any offering, any sacrifice where there's not a personal sacrifice and cost required. Any involvement in God's work and anything that's going to be accomplished for God will take personal sacrifice of either time, talent, or treasure. I looked back... uh, and I've shared this several times before in the, the history of, of uh, this church and the building that we're sitting in right now and enjoying a comfortable air conditioning and worship and padded pews. And um, that all came about because of the personal sacrifice of those that came together some 50 plus years ago to, to purchase this land and to build this structure. It was actually uh, a meeting March 29th, 1967. And to hear the minutes of this, uh, the, the group that organized and, and then built this, this structure. Let me just read some of the highlights. There were 29 people there. They signed a paper to indicate that they were in favor of starting and building a new church building. The desire was to purchase four acres from Mr. Hassett. And in, and if possible, approximately one and a half acres from Mrs. Ross. Ultimately, I think we have 16 or 17 acres here. We then discussed the financing of the new church building. Mrs. Hassett advised that the Union Savings Bank in Manchester, Michigan would loan us $40,000 with $10,000 down at 5% interest. The minutes go on to say, we then discussed how much cash we could make available so that we might come close to meeting the required $10,000. So they didn't have, they didn't have the $10,000. So at that meeting, they, they, they asked, how are we going to do this? And uh, what I find interesting in the minutes here, it says the following people offered the following amounts. (laughs) And their names are listed and how much they, they gave. Uh, there's 13 people listed here. I'm not going to read their names. And the, the pledges and the gifts range from $3,000 to $10. I, I, I love that, the whole range in between. The total that from that meeting was $7,560, so they're still a little bit short. Uh, cash on hand, $153.62. So now they have a total of $7,713.62. And they gave out pledge cards and people pledged to give to try to get the $10,000 to give the down payment to get the loan to build the building. I love, uh, I love how this uh, notes on this meeting from March 29th end up. <clears throat> this is great. The building committee was selected. It was to include all of the men of the church. 
So if you're here and you're a man, you're on the building committee. <laughs> and all their names are listed too. And then it ends, it says, the meeting adjourned with everyone joining hands in a huge circle, 29 people, and singing, blessed be the tie that binds. I want to tell you, nothing happens. Whether it's building a building or, or involved in a, some sort of ministry within the church, nothing happens. This is true in any area of life. This is true in athletics, isn't it? If you're going to get involved in in athletics, just take a running, for example, and you're going to run a half marathon or something, that's going to come at great cost because you're going to have to discipline yourself to, to train. And the same is true in, in, in God's work. Nothing happens without personal sacrifice. And so nothing great for God. And the temple was built because people sacrificed. Well, secondly... Uh, second life lesson is this. The key to joyful giving is to first give ourselves to God. So here's, here's King David and here are the leaders and they're giving generously these offerings to God. And the whole key to that is how are they able to give joyfully and generously. And as we read scripture about giving, the key really is that you have to first give yourself to God. Um. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, the word there for cheerful is the Greek word hilarion. It really means God loves a, a hilarious giver. And God loves those who give cheerfully and who give generously. And the whole key to that is that in order to do that, we first, what, give ourselves to God. God, uh, I belong to you. And as David acknowledged in the prayer, Everything that I have and everything that I'm blessed with comes from you. And as the, the verse says in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul writes and asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive from God? And the answer is nothing. And so we read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul pleads with people to present your bodies what is a living sacrifice to God. Give your life to God. Dedicate your whole life to Him. And as we do that... Giving becomes a joy. In fact, Paul writes to a, uh, the Corinthian church about the Macedonian church and uh, their generosity in giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And he says, I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up to generosity. For I testify that you gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to God's people. And they exceeded our expectations. Here's the key. They, first, they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us also. And so how are the people, the leaders, able to give generously? Is because they made a previous commitment. And that previous commitment was a giving of their lives to God. And isn't it interesting, as you read through the, the Bible and you read through the Old Testament, there's one area in all the Bible where God says, I want you to test me. And that only area in which God says test me is the area of finances. It's in Malachi 3.10. 
And he's talking about giving to God. And he says, test me and see that if you give to me and I won't, that I won't open up the windows of heaven and bless you. And so uh, the key to joyful giving is to first give ourselves to God. Well, the third life lesson and the last one that we want to look at this morning is this, that God wants each of us to be involved in temple building. God wants each of us to be involved in temple building. Now, when I say temple building, I'm not talking about a structure. Uh, that, was, that was Solomon's task, to build a, a permanent structure. But as we know, as we come into the New Testament, uh, Jesus makes a statement in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the temple building that we are talking about is uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, since Pentecost, uh, this Holy Spirit's come, and if we know Christ is our Savior, He lives within us. And so Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so we're not talking about a building here, we're talking about people. And that God wants each of us to be involved in temple building. 1 Peter 2.5 uses this imagery. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So, so Peter picks up on this analogy of building a physical structure with stones. And he says, you're, you're living stones. And you're being built into a spiritual house. And, it's, and the spiritual house is, is the church. And so uh, you're, you're uh, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad today that, like, unlike the Old Testament, you didn't have to come to church and, and bring a, a, a lamb to offer on the altar as a covering for sin? Because Jesus has become the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who gave His life for your sin and my sin. And now we come as spiritual priests to offer, what? Sacrifices of praise to God. God wants us to be involved in temple building. Well, how can we do that? Three quick ways and then we'll conclude this morning. How can we be involved in in this whole matter of, of, of building up the temple, which is really the church and, and, and people. Let me suggest three ways. They all start with the letter W. First of all, we can involve in temple building with our words. With our words. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. And Paul's writing about the, the, the change in our life when Christ comes into our hearts and lives. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. So one of the, one of the changes when, when we become a, a follower of Jesus, one of the things that's supposed to change is our speech. And Paul says, I don't want any, you shouldn't have any more unwholesome talk. The word literally is sapros. The picture is that piece of fruit or something that's in the back of your refrigerator that you've forgotten about and you discover it like two months later and it's, it's rotten. That's what it, the picture is. Don't let any rotten speech come out of your mouth. Your, your speech is supposed to be sanctified, but only which is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And so Paul's encouraging us to, what, use our words to build up 
and encourage others. And our words can be used to either build up or they can be used to tear down. And Paul says, I want you to use words to build up and edify one another. And so we can encourage and build up the body of Christ by our words. And um, one, of the, one of the functions of the, the body of Christ and one of the reasons we try to occasionally have a, a fellowship meal is so that we can kind of get to know one another and get to know what those needs are so that we can move beyond saying to somebody, God bless you and have a nice day. There's nothing wrong with that. But God designed the church to, to, to be connected to one another and to find out where people are struggling so that we can target our words of encouragement because we know what's going on in someone's life. Why? Because we're talking to them, we're listening, and we can pray for them and encourage them. And so we can build up by our words. And secondly, we can build, be involved in temple building by our witness. And that's Acts chapter 1 verse 8, isn't it? Um, uh, there at uh, uh, the beginning of the book of Acts and Jesus' words, you will be what my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, the good news of, of the gospel um, and that's how the, the gospel is shared. That's how the church is built. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 um, and says that, that we are now his ambassadors. We're his representatives. And he says, we uh, beseech you that in verse 20, as God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God Here's the gospel. God made him who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect to be sin for us. He took our sin, put it on Jesus. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we put our faith in him and him alone and he looks at us, he sees us just as if we've never sinned positionally. And as I've said dozens of times in Andy Stanley's book, How Good Do You Have to Be to Get to Heaven? The answer is perfect. Therefore, we have a problem because we're all sinners. And so we understand our, our need and we understand that Jesus came to meet that need and his perfection and his shed blood on the cross paid for our sin debt. And when we put our faith in him, his righteousness gets accredited to our account and God sees us as his perfect children positionally. Uh, we build up the temple. We build up the church by our words. We build it up by our witness. Thirdly, we build it up by our works. By our works. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Paul points this out to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, earlier, he tells us and makes it very clear, uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, uh, you can't work your way to heaven. Uh, it's not by works. It's all by what Christ has done. But then in verse 10, he, he writes and says, For we are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but he's created us, what? To do good works. And so the body of Christ, the temple building, happens when we um, get involved in doing works for him. And Ephesians chapter 4 lists uh, uh, the gifts that, that God has given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip his people for works of service. 
so that the body of Christ may be built. Verse 16 concludes, and it says, and, and the whole body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so we discover when we come to faith in Christ that, that, that God has given each of us a, a spiritual giftedness, uh, an ability uh, from Him that is to be used, what, to what? To build up the body of Christ. To do good works and to encourage others and to build up the body. And so as we think about um, these three life lessons, nothing great for God happens without personal sacrifice. And so I'm wondering about us today. What, what personal sacrifice are, are we willing to make for God and for His kingdom? It might be time. It might be using our talents. It might be our treasure. But David says, I'm not going to sacrifice and give a gift for God that costs me nothing. Secondly, I'm wondering if we've ever made the commitment to give our life to God. The first step is salvation and receiving Christ as Savior, putting our faith and trust in Him and Him alone to pay for our sin debt as our entrance ticket to heaven. And that's received by simply by, by, by praying and asking God to, to, to be our Lord, to be our Savior, that we're trusting in Him and Him alone to pay our sin debt and asking Him to can come into our life and to be our Lord and Savior. But there's a second step, and that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, and he says, hey, I want you to give your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And someone once said the problem with a living sacrifice is that they keep crawling off the altar, and sometimes that's true, and so now Paul's talking about sanctification. I want you to give your life to, to him. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, so that we make it our goal and aim to please him. And so that's, that should be the, the goal and the aim of our life daily. Lastly, um, am I involved in temple building? Am I using my words, my witness, um, my works to build up God's kingdom and God's church? Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for just this um, overview of uh, what you put in David's heart and then ultimately in, in his son Solomon's heart to uh, build a, a permanent structure for you. And Lord, as we sit here some 3,000 years later, we know that, uh, that uh, the church today is not a building, but the church is people. And Lord, I pray that um, we would be involved in um, temple building today. That even uh, today as we gather here together this morning to, to worship and encourage one another, that we will use our words to bless and encourage others. Lord, uh, I pray that this week as we leave from here that we will also uh, consider ourselves um, ambassadors for you to share the good news of the gospel with others. And then, Lord, help us to, uh, help us to be involved in, in ministry and in using um, our gifts and talents to advance your kingdom. And Lord, we realize that uh, the church cannot function apart from people who are willing to serve and to sacrifice. And so we're, we're thankful for those that uh, 
in the past and even today are uh, serving and have sacrificed for you. And Lord, may we continue to do so for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.